Have you thought about how massive of a thing it is for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth perpetually and bear fruit? Have you thought about how much is required for that to happen? How many laborers? How many conversations? How many churches? How many softened hearts? How much opposition? How much passing the baton? How much money? How much death? How much the gospel is carried on and goes through for that commission to be fulfilled? Have you thought about just how much it takes? This is not, hey, let's send out a mass email to everyone's heart, gospel there. No, the gospel goes from a person to a person to all the people over all the times. That's a lot of work. What if you've ever been nervous about, is the work going to work? Or do you have a confidence as you even look at that big, vast network of need when you consider who it is who oversees it. Obviously, the way it all works is we have a God who is all providing. He provides for all his work. Amen? Amen. amen. Just so you know, that will never discourage me. If something's true and you say, Amen. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> there it is. Let's remember where we are. Right? We're in the book of Acts. It's written by Luke to Theophilus to give him an account of what happened with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it began in Luke's gospel, and it continues here in the book of Acts. Right? It doesn't just end at the bodily resurrection of Christ, but Luke is also concerned and wants to communicate how the work of Christ continues to shape history and turn the world upside down through the church, those who have come to believe in Jesus. Now remember, this book begins with Luke saying, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Again, that's a reference to the gospel account he wrote. The book of Acts, though, is Luke dealing with the afterword. Uh, Jesus commanded that repentance for forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And now, by his spirit, he has empowered his church to do that very thing. And Luke is giving us the play-by-play. -play. He's recording how the gospel witness started in Jerusalem, reached all Judea and Samaria, and then went out to the ends of the earth. Well, as we said at the beginning, we're in Acts 18 this morning, which is about 20 years after Jesus was taken up. 20 years. Sometimes we, we read and we think this all happened in the span of a couple months, but this 20 years have passed since Jesus ascended into glory. Right? Acts 18 takes place approximately 20 years after the commission was given to go make disciples of all the nations. Uh, we've been able to watch kind of a time lapse of obedience uh, as we see in the book of Acts, how we see that command play out in this book. 
Uh, we've watched the gospel go from Jerusalem to Damascus, to Antioch in Syria, to Tarsus of Cilicia, to Derby in Lystra, to Antioch in Galatia, to Troas in Asia, crossing the Aegean Sea to Europe and reaching Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. All those cities being in Macedonia, and then Paul headed south where he got to Athens, which is the province of Achaia, and that's where we find the gospel arriving at this morning, in Corinth. So this, this chapter is how the gospel got to Corinth, or at least how the gospel was set up in Corinth. And we'll go ahead and read it now from verse 1 again to verse 17. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. You might hear in that even the Ezekiel reading, right? Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Dear saints, this is God's word. We thank God for all of his word, and may he bless the hearing of it and our eager attempt to do it. Not going to lie, this was a harder one to preach. There's a lot here, and it's kind of hard to maybe understand how it's all connected, at least in the narrative, as Luke is writing it. But I found it helpful to keep coming back up for that macro view. Remember what Paul is getting after in this account. And I hope it at least frames us with a little bit of edification in our time examining this passage. 
So as we reflect on the gospel at Corinth, we're going to examine two main points. The first point being God's provision for gospel witness. And then the second point being God's promise for gospel workers. First, we're going to look at God's provision for gospel witness. And next, we're going to look at God's promise for gospel workers. So first, let's look at God's provision for gospel witness. A Corinth had a reputation for being immoral, even in their day, uh, which helps us to appreciate some of the content of Paul's letters to them. Uh, some people, even if you're not familiar with, with, with church and you know about the Corinthians, you probably even know a little bit about the Corinthians that they were known for being immoral. But even with that kind of dark backdrop, it's interesting, this is a very fruitful place for ministry for Paul. Uh, in verse 11, we see that he stayed 18 months here. That's a year and a half. And you may be surprised to learn all that he accomplished. Not only did the gospel go forward, not only did a lot of people get saved, but this is the place and this is the visit through which he actually wrote not just 1 Thessalonians, but also 2 Thessalonians as well. That first one, it seems he wrote after Timothy and Silas arrived from Thessalonica. And the second letter, shortly after he heard back from them about his letter, uh, specifically as he was telling them to encourage one another about what it means to have life after death. They had some questions for follow-up for Paul. And he wrote the second letter to them to further elaborate on that. But those letters were kind of back-to-back. -back. It was during his time in Corinth. As we said earlier, this is about 20 years after Christ has ascended. And we see the gospel still going forward, not losing any steam, and here getting established in Corinth. And in Corinth, we see yet again what we've seen in city to city, what we've seen play out before, and that is God is supplying everything that's needed for his work. I want to just kind of quickly scan over the passage and just highlight some of God's, I think, pretty profound and exhaustive provision for gospel witness, even from this passage. God provides for his witness in all the needs and turns of the ministry. I think this is encouraging. We've seen this happen place and place again. It doesn't matter what circumstance Paul gets into or Peter got into or John gets into. God has just what they need. And we see that play out here at Corinth. Uh, just consider what the Lord provided for the ministry in Corinth. Well, first, he provided a place for ministry. We see that there in verse 1. As they were surveying around and they weren't always allowed to go certain places, we thought of that earlier in Acts 16, there seemed to be an open door he opened for them to come to Corinth. And that's how they get there. But he provides a place for them to be. Uh, two, he provides them a team to labor with. Verse 2, it says, when he got there, he found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla who were given some background data on them, I believe, because they become some very prominent partners of Paul in ministry. Now, he'll even say of them later in Acts 16, greet Prisca and Aquila, which were probably their more formal names. He said, greet them, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentile give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So Priscilla and Aquila got busy. Not only were they faithful co-laborers with Paul, they housed the church in their crib. So God provides a place to be. He provides them with a team. And even how that happens, we, again, don't forget, I was tempted to call this the peculiar providence of God part three, but I didn't. But you bring that forward through all of Acts. God is doing things people don't think of. So here there's this, there's this guy, we're told Claudius, 
He commands all the Jews to leave Rome. He's actually persecuting the Jews. That's how they actually end up in Corinth. But little does he know, his expelling of them formed a pretty powerful tag team of ministry in Corinth. Another thing he provides for them is their, he provides for their needs through employment. You see that in verse 3. Paul finds them, and when he finds them, he says, and they happen to be of the same trade. So he stayed with them, and he worked, for they were tent makers. I wonder if you're tempted to do something for the Lord, but you kind of don't know how you're going to make a living. Just be encouraged. The Lord provides that. He provides the jobs. He got all the jobs. He can give you one. He does this for Paul. Paul shows up, and he gives him some work to do for his ability to sustain himself. Not only does he provide for their employment, he also provides for them an opportunity to preach. There weren't synagogues everywhere, but there happened to be one in Corinth. And here Paul is able to go into the synagogue every Sabbath and persuade the Jews and the Greeks to preach about the Lord Jesus. What if you ever feel like, man, I wish I had an open door to share the gospel with somebody and just don't feel like there's an opportunity for you to proclaim that, but God is the door opener. He's the window opener. He creates and provides opportunities for his people to preach. We see him doing that for them here. So he sent them to do this work and he's provided for them to do that. It was Paul's custom to go straight to the synagogue because he was permitted in synagogues to preach to those who were gathered there. I do want to just highlight though, Paul was not preaching what the other rabbis preached. He was preaching what the rabbis needed to preach. He was preaching, we're told, Christ. He was preaching that those scriptures that they knew, that they believed in them had eternal life, he was preaching who it testified about. He was testifying about Jesus. Not only did God give them an opportunity to preach, God provided them with additional support. Uh, look at verse 5. So Paul's preaching, Paul's working, Paul got a team, got a little vision. We see Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, and it says Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now the question is, why is there a connection between him being occupied with the word and Timothy and Silas showing up? Well, we know one thing Timothy and Silas brought was good word from Thessalonica. They came into church, Paul was nervous about them. I don't know how this is going to go. Persecution may be stirring up a little bit. He was nervous. Silas and Timothy show up and they say, yo, the Thessalonians are good. The Lord is holding them down. Even though they got affliction, they got much joy, and they're just bearing fruit. They're just trusting the Lord. They, they turn to the Lord from serving idols. And this is one of the things that inspires Paul to write the letter to the Thessalonians. He's so hyped about the good word he hears from the Thessalonians, he wants to encourage them to keep going. But not only did Timothy and Silas bring a good word about the Thessalonians, they also seem to have brought a couple dollars with them too. They came from Philippi through Macedonia to meet up with Paul in Corinth. And we're not told anything about money in the passage, but I think it's clearly implied in that before we see Paul's working and he's using Sabbath, when they show up, he's occupied with the word. I think part of what frees him to be occupied is that Timothy and Silas brought that love offering. We know that the Philippians were funding Paul because in, in the letter he writes to the Philippians later, do you remember what he says of the Philippian church? 
in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 14 through 15, he rejoices over them. He says, nobody entered into partnership with me except for y'all from the first day until now. So since Paul left Philippi, Philippi was sending Paul checks, like be occupied with the word. And it seemed that when he first got to Corinth, he had to do a little tent making. Timothy and Silas came up with a, with a, with a little bit more coins, and Paul was able to be a little more freed with the word. So God provides them with additional support. Not only does he provide them with additional support, let us not take for granted that the text does let us know he provides them with the message. Paul was not out there freestyling. Uh, Acts 18, verse 5, part B, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Paul was not out there preaching your best life now. He was not out there preaching that Jesus wants you to be rich, healthy, and to get everything you want. He was not out there preaching God as a holy ATM. No, no, no. He was out there preaching the Christ. And we know later in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, you know, when I came to you, I chose to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul would show up and throw the cross up. He would say, look at him, look at him again, and look at him again. Paul is not here getting creative. He says, we, were, we, don't, we don't use underhanded ways. We don't tamper with God's word. By open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Paul was there, we preach Christ. And he got that from God. He says so explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5, right? He has made us ministers of reconciliation. Right before that, all this is from God who is making his appeal through us saying, be reconciled. So God gave them the message to preach. So let's just recount a couple things. He provides them with the place to be in, provides them with the team to labor with, provides for their needs of employment, provides them an opportunity to preach, provides them with additional support, and there's more. This one's for you, Bill and Ben. Look, he provides them with a meeting space. <laughs> Look at verse 6 through 7. When they opposed and reviled him, this is the Jews, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now on. I'm going to the Gentiles. This is what we do see earlier that we read about in Ezekiel. This is a pronouncement of judgment. Paul's like, listen, I came as a faithful watchman. I came and I faithfully trumpeted the message. I told you that you are a sinner before God. I told you that God is holy and righteous and good. I told you that God will require from everyone for their own sins. I told you that his judgment, his judgment is terrible. I told you that the soul that sins shall die. I told you that the judgment of God is unbearable. And I told you that God loves us so much he kept his promise. The deliverer came, the Messiah showed up. He sent us a savior in his son. I told you to turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus. I told you that he died on the cross in our place and rose from the dead. I told you that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. I, I told you that he's coming back. And I told you that everyone who's loving his appearing, who's looking for his return, gets to be with him where he is. I told you. Okay, amen. Praise the Lord for that. He said, I told you, and you rejected. And he's like, I'm done. Friend, if you're here and you do not know Jesus, do not presume you get more opportunities 
for God to call to you to turn from your sin and believe in his son. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You are guaranteed to have this moment because you're in this moment. You are not guaranteed a moment tomorrow. And his voice goes out. He calls upon everyone everywhere, repent of their sins, turn to his son, receive his saving love, enter into his redeemed family, and he will be with you as your God forever. And if that's you today and you, 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 you haven't listened before, we, we plead with you. We appeal to you. Hear from me now. I'm, I told you and I'm telling you now, believe in the Lord Jesus. The Jews had resisted that. They had rejected that. And Paul said, you know what? I did my part. I did my part. I'm turning to the Gentiles. And that's what he does. We shouldn't take this to mean that he has categorically shifted in his ministry here. If you just look over at a page, like your next page, look at Acts 19, look at verse 8. When Paul shows up in Ephesus in the next scene, he, he gets back to what he used to do. He goes right into that synagogue. Three months. Like, so that's, he's not saying he's never preaching to the Jews again. He, he is saying, okay, Jews, if you're rejecting this word, I'm going to give it to those who don't. And this this brings to our mind what Jesus said about the master's feast. He says, oh, the master's throwing a party and tell his neighbors they're invited. And that the invitations go out and the neighbors come back and they all made excuses. Somebody's like, ah, I just bought some, bought some animals or I just bought a field. One of them said, I just got married. And Jesus says, okay. Go out to the highways, go out to the hedges, go out and compel anybody to come. Fill the master's feast with people. And that's exactly what's happening here. This is what God promised would happen in the story of redemption as the Jews are hardened. It's, it's to the Gentiles' exclusion. And when the Gentiles get included, it, it provokes the Jews to frustration and jealousy. Here, the invitation went out to the Jews, to the Jew first, and they, they rejected that invitation. So, so Paul stayed up all night sending them invitations to the Gentiles. And in leaving the synagogue, which probably would have happened, you know, they were, they were reviling him, they were opposing him, getting more hostile to him. It would have not been as easy for him to preach in the synagogue. The Lord gave him a meeting space. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, I like this, his house was right next door. <laughs> I love that. It's like, okay, you're not going to listen? Y'all, I'm going to see y'all across the street. And the Lord provided for him. And I, I bet that Paul was hanging out the window if they had it like that. As people were going to synagogue like, yo, come here first. The Lord gave him a, a laborer who was, who was already soft to the Lord. The Lord had already set that up. Had this guy happen to have a house right next to the synagogue. The Lord had already turned his heart. He was a fearer of the Lord. And as Paul's getting opposed, he welcomes Paul and says, you can come set up shop here. He provides them with a meeting space. Not only does he provide them with a meeting space, family. Look at verse 8. He provides them with gospel fruit. We're told in verse 8 that Crispus, best name ever, we're told that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. 
despite the opposition, despite the reviling, not only is God saving, but he's saving the rulers of the synagogue. And we're told in addition to that, not only him and his household, we're told many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And this is what we expect when the word goes forth. Paul would later write this to the church in Rome. Listen, when faith comes a certain way, he says faith comes through hearing and, and hearing through the word of Christ. How can people believe in whom they never heard? How can people hear unless somebody preaches? And when somebody preaches, when the watchman gets up there and starts trumpeting, God gets to save him. And that's what we see play out here. The word is going forward. Faith is being created. People are being saved. He provides them with gospel fruit. Not only does he provide them with gospel fruit, we know he also provides him with encouragement and with protection, and I'll get to that in a couple moments. That's some pretty expansive provision the Lord has there. That ought to encourage us as we seek to carry our cross, as we seek to hold forth the gospel in our lives, consider what the Lord can do, what he can open, what he can provide. Listen, Jesus promised this. He promised them that he would do stuff like this. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, uh, the, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and the context is he's calling them to a radical devotion in him. He's calling them to serve him, to serve him alone. You can't serve me and money. You can't serve me and resources. You can't serve me and comfort. You can't serve me and stuff, but serve me. And Jesus knew that that call to serve him was so destabilizing. And you've experienced this. You've read the word, and as the word is reading you, you get exposed. And some of those things are like, man, that's, that's a lot you're asking for, Jesus. Jesus says, it's more than you think it is. There's the amount you're, you're mindful of. I'm coming for all of that. And he tells them, but you do not need to worry because I got you. In, in Matthew 6, the context of do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll wear, what you'll put on, the context is not just encouragement when the dollars are low. Well, praise God, there's encouragement there when the dollars are low. The context there is if you live for me and you're nervous about those basic things, your necessities, I just want you to know I got you. I got you. Jesus tells them at the conclusion, I remember he says, you worried about what you're going to eat? Do you know I feed the birds? You worried about your, what you'll wear? Have you seen the grass I clothe? Even Solomon with his big walk-in closet ain't got nothing on my meadows. He says, and I'm your father. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what's the next part? All these things will be added to you. What things? The things you need to seek him and serve him. All these things get added to you. Paul went out with a Bible and some tent-making skills. But he had the Lord, and everywhere he went, all these things were added to him. This is why when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he's like, listen, I learned the secret of contentment. 
I know to have a full fridge. I know I have a little fridge. I know I have abundance. I know to have need. The Lord's with me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What does that mean? I can do all things through Christ who gives me all things. Seek him first, which in the context means seek him only. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek the righteousness of God. Seek the glory of God. Seek to be a faithful servant of God. Seek to be a faithful witness of God, whatever the cost. Oftentimes when somebody's at that valley of decision, one of the things I like to do is bring them to Matthew 6 and say, listen, what do you think is most glorifying to God? And before you start listening on your fears, just put a period and do that and trust him with the rest. Live for him. Live fully for him. Trust him for what you need, whether that's a job or companions to labor with. The Lord will give you what you need. Trinity, the Lord will give you what you need. Delray, the Lord will give you what you need. Self, <laughs> the Lord will give you what you need. Again, this of course does not mean don't care about providing or dealing wisely with our resources or even seeing to the general cares of life, but we must recognize that those are the very things that Jesus calls us to trust him with as we serve him. When we focus on Jesus, there's this kind of craziness all his disciples get. When we start seeing how worthy he really is, we start thinking through doing some crazy stuff. And that's exactly right. And when we start bringing out the calculator and the spreadsheet, that craziness starts going down. And we start to cool in that commitment. And I'm not saying don't have those combos, do have those combos, but make sure you're not basing pleasing the Lord on what you see and that you're trusting he's going to give you all the things you need. Paul observed God providing for him, providing for his gospel witness as he sought the kingdom of God, as he sought the righteousness of God time and time again, and such is the case we observe even in Corinth. And Paul knew this as well. He will later write this very thing and send it out to the churches. Remember how he encourages the Philippians for giving? He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. He says, something I learned, church, that I just want to bless y'all with. He, he got you for real, for real. Friends, this applies to every domain of need in his people's life. You look at this list and you see that God, okay, God provided the place, he provided the people, he provided the monies, provided the meeting place, provided the message, provided the fruit. What do they need he doesn't provide? And this applies to every need of, of our life. Again, there's, there's a connection. We, we bring that anticipation, that dependence on God into everything we do because we're trying to honor God in everything we do. And in order to honor God in anything we do, he must provide. He must give it. But we see he gives and he gives and he gives. And he has more grace to give. You need grace to fight sin? He'll provide for that. You need grace to understand God's word? He'll provide for that. You need grace to keep going and to keep striving? He'll provide for that. You need grace to grant you courage? 
and an opportunity to share the gospel with someone you know is lost, he provides for that. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Oh, dear saints, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things needed for our salvation, all things needed for our sanctification, all things needed for us to carry out the commission, all things needed for our sustenance, all things needed for our stability in Christ, all things needed for our eventual arrival to our Father's house, God will supply it all. This is Abraham and Isaac. This is how the Bible starts. Get that it all comes from him. Abraham, sacrifice your son. Abraham says, okay, Lord, I'm going to obey, Lord. This is, this is a wild one. But he's obeying, he's walking, he's seeking his righteousness. And when it comes time, God provides. So much so, Abraham renamed the place. Uh, we're, we're told that when they get up there, when it's time to make a sacrifice, Rather than it being his son, God provided a ram that was caught in a thicket. When, 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 when Abraham saw that, he saw this is God providing for what God requires. It says in Genesis twenty-two fourteen. so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And that just makes us think of another mount, Amen. This isn't just Abraham and Isaac. This is Christ in the gospel. God requires that the soul that sins shall die. That's not dramatic. That is right. It is fair. It is just. It is needed. That we who have rebelled against God, we who have broken his law, we deserve, we are required to be broken by his judgment and crushed by his wrath and brought to an end in his anger. But God loves his enemies. God has mercy on us in our miseries. And before sending his son to judge, we're told he sent his son to save, and the Lord provided it all. You know why there's a gospel? Because the Lord provides. Oh, God provided his son to live a perfect life in our place. God provided the arrangement for us to be forgiven and to have terms of peace. God provided the physical body for the will of God to be accomplished with. God provided the cross for the justice of God to be displayed on. God provided the precious blood that would pay all our sins in full. And when Christ went into the tomb, cold and dead, God provided the resurrection. God provided the ransom and the reconciliation. God provides the invitation to everyone everywhere to repent of your sins, to trust in Jesus, and he provides with that the promise that if you do, you will be provided eternal life. The gospel from beginning to end is the good news of how the Lord provides. And his provision keeps going, saints. He provides regeneration in the new birth. How does someone come to believe that because God provides. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh 
is no help at all. He provides his spirit to dwell in his people. He provides his people with daily grace for their daily journey. He empowers them all to live for his glory. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find how much he provides for his people as his witnesses. I think that's a little courage producing. You know, you need to share the gospel with somebody, you start thinking about them and they get really big in your eyes and you choose not to do it. And that's just because you've forgotten who the Lord is and we've forgotten what he provides. Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised to find in Acts 6, uh, 18, this abundant mountain of provision for his people as they witness. He provides them with direction to a place. He provides them with laborers and companions to serve with. He provides them with jobs to sustain their labor. He provides them with daily bread and money as needed. He provides them with what to say and what to speak. He provides a place for them to gather and grow as a congregation. And he even provides saving grace that grows them as a gathering. Oh, dear flock, whether it's the needs of the work here at this congregation or the needs of the work of the church plant coming up or the needs of the work at any congregation, let us all be settled and still in the fact that the Lord will provide for his work. Brings us to our second point, and that's God's promises for gospel workers. Not only do we see some encouraging provision here. We also get some encouraging promises. In the text, God gives Paul three promises related to his ministry in Corinth. And it seems to have the effect of encouraging Paul, emboldening Paul, and helping him to continue on in the work. Again, he stays there for a year and a half. Let's look at these promises. The first thing he promises is his presence. Again, promises for gospel workers. First thing he promises is his presence. Promises his presence for Paul's courage. Look at verse 9. It says, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. It's one of the most common and comforting Phrases in the whole of the Bible, do not be afraid, I'm with you. Oh, dear church, let us remember, sometimes we make Paul as if he like needed no encouragement, he needed no strengthening of his soul. The Lord gave this dude a vision, which might mean he was really downcast, which we know happens to Paul. You remember 2 Corinthians 1, he says, yo, when we went to Ephesus, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. This is a man who knew the weariness of his own efforts. Perhaps he's a little discouraged here. Perhaps he's feeling the weight of the work and the toll of opposition. Again, you can only take so many bad emails before it starts messing with you. You only take so many insults before it starts messing with you. Only takes so many mean mugs before it starts messing with you. And Paul, that, that was not where that stopped. Paul had some stuff happen to him before. Or perhaps Paul is just steadfast and he just needs to be encouraged to continue standing firm. We're not told why this vision comes to Paul. 
We just have preserved for us the content of its encouragement. I think we'll all find we can extract some encouragement for ourselves. I am with you, Paul. We're told of a promise of God's presence to sustain Paul. Don't be afraid, not because you got this, bro. Not be afraid because you look like you could take them. No, no, don't be afraid. Don't shrink back. Keep speaking. Don't be afraid. He says, I'm with you. This is a foundation for every missionary. This is the consolation of every sheep. This is the fuel for every saint seeking to serve the Lord. That as we go and wherever we go, the Lord goes with us. One of my favorite hymns is a sovereign protector I have. Hear the words of the first verse. It says, a sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. His grace causes joys to abound. He stays as the dearest of friends and walls of salvation surrounds the soul he delights to defend. The Lord's telling Paul, remember, I'm with you, and I'm delighted to defend you. <clears throat> Fear not, Paul. He who commands the elements commands your circumstances. Praise God. Fear not, Paul. He who surrounds his people like the mountains surround Jerusalem, he himself is your defender and your protector. Fear not, Paul, the unseen and yet ever-present God, who is Lord of all, remains with you and is himself your help. The reason gospel work succeeds is not because churches give enough money, it's not because this family finally goes and joins. The reason that gospel work succeeds is not because of the bravery of any particular person. It is because the Lord attends to his work. And isn't this the grounds of confidence for all the people of God as we all carry that mantle of being his witnesses? I love that we get to listen to what God told Paul, but God told that to us. He didn't say the not harm you part. He did promise the I'm with you part. Isn't this what Christ himself anchored in the forwarding success of the commission he provided us? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Keep about my work. Don't fear what man will do to you. Remember, I, the Lord, am with you. He promised his presence to Paul, and, and praise God, he promises his presence with us. Second thing he promises Paul is his protection from harm. Look again at verse 9 through 10. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. No one will attack you to harm you. <laughs> I'm sure that was encouraging for Paul based on what he had been through. Here the Lord tells Paul that he isn't going to be harmed here. 
You might notice the words say, no one will attack you to harm you, but we should understand the sense to be that no one will be able to successfully harm you. We know it doesn't mean that no one will try to harm you, because if so, Luke forgot he wrote that, and verse 12 is a group of people trying to attack to harm him. Right in the immediate section, they're trying to harm Paul. Now look down at verse 12 through verse 17. It says, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. What we're supposed to see in this is, I think the fulfillment of his promise. If you're reading it just like, hey, that's kind of random. Why is that there? I think this is the fulfillment of what God promised. And we're supposed to know that this is God doing this. Paul did not get out of this by his own ingenuity. It's not like his, his wisdom. This wasn't thinking fast on his feet. He didn't even get to say anything. We know because verse 14, it says, when Paul was about to open his mouth, God had Gallio open his. And Gallio essentially dismisses the whole thing. He says, if it's a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, say to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So we're told Gallio was proconsul which was a high governing official of a Roman province. And here we're told where he was, this is Achaia, and the Jews are seeking to bring harm to Paul by accusing him of blasphemy. It, it brings to mind very much the, the scene of the Lord Jesus. And as an aside, there is debate about who this Sosthenes is and why he's mentioned here. I think he's the same guy from 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. You might remember that the letter to the Corinthians begins by Paul saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. I think Luke is including what happened to him not only because he was a well-known individual in the area as the ruler of the synagogue, but I think also to introduce the sufferings of one who would later become regarded as a faithful brother of Christ in the church. It's unclear if that's exactly what's happening, but I think it's plausible. Regardless, though, what seems to be highlighted in this section is not the beating of Sosthenes, and it's not the inner workings of the trial. It is somewhat the indifference of Gallio. It's, it's also the inability of the Jews, even when united, to bring about their end. It seems that located here as proof that Paul was hearing from God clearly is what God did to protect him. God promised no harm would come to him in Corinth, and even those the Jews tried, even though the Jews tried, they failed. And as we see with Sosthenes, they didn't fail because violence was beyond them or suddenly they had a change of heart. It's important for us to remember that these are authorities at the time. Both the Jewish people in a united effort and the Roman authority. I don't know if you've ever been attacked to be jumped or ever seen such a thing, but a group of people coming after you is scary. Super scary. It says the Jews made a united attack. And they were vicious. We know because Sosthenes is the proof. And we know that this is a Roman province. These were powerful people. These, this is the same kind of setup that got Jesus crucified. 
These are both significant and powerful forces, and yet God made them both complete non-factors. No wonder when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians when he was in Corinth, right? No wonder he wrote to them to pray that we be delivered from wicked men, not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. God negates the evil intentions of the Jews, and he fills the Roman proconsul with total disinterest. And I think what we're supposed to observe in this section is how God is providing that protection, as he promised in his word to Paul. The God who delivered Daniel from the lion's den is here delivering Paul from the lion's mouth. Luke, Luke seems to just be underscoring how God is in total control, doing his work according to his word. Sometimes we see he provides deliverance from those circumstances. That's what he does here. He, he told him, hey, here, this is going to be, you're not getting beat up here, Paul, which is a very unique relief in Paul's life because he was pretty much beat up everywhere. This doesn't also make Paul assume, oh, we're not supposed to get beaten up for the gospel. No, he doesn't assume he'll never experience that again. There's plenty of that coming up. In fact, he's going to go to Ephesus later, next. And we're told that he had to fight beasts there. He's going to end up in prison in Jerusalem and in Rome eventually where he will be killed for the gospel. So what this is, though, is this is Paul deriving comfort from God's work and watching God's power to bring about his end. Paul is confident that God is in control and able to protect and deliver him when needed. That brings us to the third promise that God gives to Paul. And that's at the end of verse 10. <laughs> he says, stick with it. Don't get afraid. Remember I'm with you. I'll protect you and hey. I have many people in this city. I have many. Why is all the work, all the expense, all the co-labor, all the effort, all the struggle, all the prison, all the death, what's it all worth? God's like, my people. You know how precious God's people are to him? so precious, and Paul will go on to say this in just a couple chapters, that he bought them with his own blood. Keep preaching. I got kids there. Paul will later reflect on what happened in Corinth through his letters, and our sister Shannon read it wonderfully. In that first letter that we have from Paul to the Corinthians, just to highlight a couple of those verses, you remember how he remarked on his ministry among them. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In verse 22 through 24, he says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. I think he's probably reflecting on his time even here in Corinth. He's preaching to both Jews and Greeks, we see. 
right there at the end of verse 4. Every Sabbath, he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And, and every Sabbath, he probably heard their excuses. Show us a sign. Give us more wisdom. He says, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called. God says, I got people there. God, how you know you got people there? God decided who his people were before the foundation of the earth. They're called. I've called them. They're mine. I know where they are. They've been elected to salvation in Jesus, and they're there. And Paul's saying, the only ones who respond are those who, who are called. Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, both the, the people of Israel and everybody else in the world. God calls from all the peoples of the earth. He said, those who are called, they hear the gospel and they hear about Christ and they're like, power and wisdom from God. I mean, it's a crazy thing what gospel ministry is, how it works. It is the invisible hand of God that applies the word of God and produces people to be born again as children of God. And the way we get to see it is how people respond when they see him. It would be very easy for us to know who the called were if there was just this floating sea over everyone's head. Because it's unknown to us does not mean it's unknown to God. He says, watch them come forward. Tell them about my son. Tell them about my son again. Tell them about my son again. And as he is lifted up, he draws men and women to himself. Right? Those who are called, they come to see Christ. They see his death on the cross. They see his resurrection from the dead. They hear the gospel. They hear how the curse of sin pierced the prince of peace. And rather than mock at it, they marvel at it. Rather than uh, reviling, they're, they're brought to rejoicing. Rather than look on the cross of Christ as pathetic in a moment of great weakness, they look on the cross of Christ as the very display of the wisdom and the power of God. Oh, look what he told Paul. Stay there. Keep grinding. I got many who are coming to life there. I have many in that city who are my people. After all, this is a specific vision Paul had about his ministry in Corinth. He didn't have the same vision for Athens. It was specific to here. And though the, the work was hard for Paul, he was strengthened by the guaranteed success of labor. And I think that's where the application is for us. That we might be strengthened by the guaranteed success of the labor. We can't make people repent and believe at all. You've had combos. You've had a lot of combos. You say, he's, but he's Lord. Yeah, but I, no, 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 not but. He's Lord. 
All people got to repent of says, oh, I just don't want to. The, the excuse, we can't, we can't get in anyone's heart and cause it to be a heart of flesh. That is God's domain, and we must trust him with it. And he has proven himself trustworthy in his working. He determines who is called. Our job is to vote, devote ourselves to the calling out. God determines who is called. Our job is to be devoted to the calling out. He's told us what to do, and that is to be his witnesses. He's told us where to be witnesses, everywhere, to the ends of the earth. He's told us why to be his witnesses. Oh, saints, why are we to be the witnesses of God? Because God has so loved the world of people that he has sent his own son, his very son, to be a savior. And now because of that son, because of the Lord Jesus, because of him, people can actually be forgiven of their sin against God. People can actually be delivered from the certain coming judgment and wrath of God on all forms of ungodliness. People can actually be restored to a right relationship with God. And they get all that only in Jesus. His is the only name that saves. His blood, the only blood that washes sins away. His people are the only people who get to dwell together with God forever. And God commands us to say, but go invite everybody to it. And what we see, that was true for Corinth, we learn is true actually for God's harvest in the world. Certainly many will oppose the invitation. Certainly many will revile that invitation. Certainly many governments and courtrooms will seek to silence that invitation. But look, beloved, many will believe. Many neighbors will believe. Many coworkers will believe. Many villagers, many tribal peoples, many government workers, many professionals will believe. Many households will believe. Many religiously lost people like Paul, like Crispus, will believe. Matthew Henry writes this, he says, in this very city, though it is a very profane and wicked city, full of impurity, Yet in this heap that seems to be all chaff, there is wheat. In this ore that seems to be all dross, there is gold. Let us not despair concerning any place when even in Corinth Christ had many people. I hope you're encouraged to share the gospel. I hope you're encouraged to live more fully in devotion even to that aim, knowing that God is a God who provides for it. God sends his word out to call his people out. He wants there to be a witness across the earth. Why? Because he's bringing a harvest from across the earth. He intends to save from across the earth. And so wherever we are, we have really good reasons to share the really good news. For God's purpose is to bring many lost people to himself. He guarantees his gospel will succeed. And he's given us a vision too. You didn't get it late at night. I'm not talking about that one if you did. 
Talk about the one that ends the Bible. Revelation is a vision given to us from the Lord. It's, it's a prophecy. It's a foretelling of what will be from the Lord himself. And you remember what he promises in that prophecy? It's not this cavernous throne with only a couple saints in the corner. No, beloved, the throne of God is packed. The city of God is packed. So packed you want to say pit act. In Revelation chapter 7, we're told that heaven will be packed. There'll be a great multitude. No one can number many, many people from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, all standing before the Lamb, all clothed in white robes, all testifying that they have been brought to believe that salvation is in Jesus. And how that happens is by witnessing. That word goes out, faith gets created, and the people of God come forth. And we're to be encouraged on that there's many who are called to life. And they're going to hear the gospel, and that is going to be God's means of drawing them. There, there might be someone here today who fills that pool, feels like God's calling you to come to Jesus, feel like God is drawing you to come to Jesus. You can, and, and our only encouragement to you is just do it. Oh, for those of us who are already in God's people, let's remember our marching orders. Let's be going. Let's take the gospel with us. Let's hold the gospel out. Let's rely on the Lord to provide for every part of his witness. Trust that the Lord will draw all his people to himself. And as we do it, saints, let's, let's wait expectantly to see what God will do with it. The Lord who's provided the ministry. The Lord who's provided the message. The Lord who's provided the messengers will surely provide for all the work. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, we pray that you help us. Pray that you help us, Lord, to trust you, to know you're faithful. Pray that you would help us to seek you eagerly, fully, completely, devotedly. And Lord, we ask that you would provide all that we need. We pray for the church plant coming. Lord, provide, provide, provide more co-laborers, provide more resources so that they can be occupied with the word. Open doors, Lord. Give opportunity to come to neighbors and to share the word. Do that for us here, Lord. Provide, raise up laborers, raise up preachers, raise up missionaries, raise up members who take the gospel with them to work. Help us to all do it, looking to you to provide, provide what we need, provide what we can't knowing that you are inclined and have promised to do. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.